everyone, welcome to another episode of Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm your host, Chris Case, sitting down today with Coach Trevor Connor in the studio, as well as Rob Pickles. He is the Advanced Development Project Manager at Pearl Izumi, which means he's a scientist, but he also likes to get crazy and get creative. Let's make you fast. Hey, I'm Dr. Steven Seiler of the University of Ogden in Norway, and I'm a longtime contributor to and a fan of Fast Talk and now Fast Talk Labs. So I'm really happy to be involved, and I, and I think the Fast Talk Labs with Chris and Trevor and their team exemplify uh, some aspects of the coaching and the, the process that I value. So I'm proud to be part of it, and I hope you will enjoy it. That was Dr. Seiler from Fast Talk episode 139 when we introduced Fast Talk Laboratories and our new virtual performance center. If you enjoy Dr. Seiler's appearances on our show, we have really good news for you. We just unlocked all 40 of Dr. Seiler's webinars, lectures, and interviews on our website, fasttalklabs.com. They are now free for members. Join at fasttalklabs.com and you can get Dr. Seiler's pioneering work in one convenient place. Sign up for a free listener membership today at FastTalkLabs.com. You used to work at the University of Colorado Sports Medicine and Performance Center as well. And he's been on Fast Talk, but it's been years and years. So welcome back to the program, Rob. Thanks for having me, Chris. I'm glad to be here. It has been too long, frankly, to sit in this room with you guys. I agree. We, we got to get you back in again. So today we want to dive into several really interesting studies. Trevor, I think you actually have a little short story you'd like to kick off the episode with. This pertains maybe more to Rob than the studies themselves, so let's hear it. This is one of my favorite moments that I want to share about Rob, and I'm probably going to really embarrass him here. But, uh, <laughs> Great. There, a few years ago, this I'm not going to name the company, uh, this company that had developed this a uh, brand new, whole new metrics training device came to Boulder and they were doing a presentation on it. And Rob sent me an email saying, hey, we got to go check this out. So we went there. Now, Rob is, you are one of the best physiologists I've ever met. I love discussing this stuff with you. You went to this just to, to watch, see what this was about. We all went to just do that. And so they came in with their product and they had the, a rider on a trainer and they were doing a whole lactate test in front of us. And you can tell they've been traveling around the country trying to wow people by doing the lactate test in, in front of all these coaches. And right at the beginning, Rob, you asked, I couldn't remember what it was. You asked a very reasonable question about their test protocol. And they turned around to you and, well, if you understood exercise testing the way we do, <laughs> and shot down your question. And I just looked at you and could see, oh, it's on. <laughs> and for the rest of this, you took them apart. Their protocol, their device, what they were claiming to the point that you could tell they just wanted this to be over and get out of the place. <laughs> I have never seen such a good dissection of the physiology to unfortunately their disadvantage <laughs> and and trevor where is that company today i don't know exactly i haven't seen them. <laughs> I, I haven't seen them either um yeah thank thank you for that trevor i i do remember that day it was um it was interesting you know i love i love i don't want to say being critical because critical has a negative connotation right right 
but but asking why and having a deeper understanding of what's going on, not necessarily taking things at face value. I think being skeptical and having a critical eye is a very valid attribute for a scientist. Yeah, with with absolutely without question. And it's it's an unbiased manner, right? It's not to be negative. It's not to say no. It's not to disprove things for the sake of disproving it, but it's to just find that deeper truth, right? Mm-hmm. And that deeper understanding. So, um, you know, and on the other side of that, I... I'll go up against anybody when it comes to lactate testing and physio- laboratory-based physiological testing. You know, I, I've had a, a long career of doing that. I've, I've pricked a lot of fingers and I've analyzed a lot of results. It's something I've enjoyed doing quite a bit. You have taken blood from my fingers many times. Many times. <laughs> Every time, comment on how old I am. a bit of a vampire. <laughs> <laughs> so, but this is why I was really excited to get you for, to this episode. Because we're going to talk about a couple of recent studies but I, I really am excited to just present this study and have you do what you did at that um, presentation of let's dissect these studies. Let's see how well they hold up and, and really want to hear what you have to say. And I love the fact I'm looking at the table here and Rob has like eight studies spread across our podcast table. So not only the studies that we're going to talk about, but he's come with other stuff. So we know we're, we're about to go to war. <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, shall we dive into the first one? It is entitled, can I read the title, Trevor, or do you want to read the title? Uh, I get to? Okay. Excessive exercise training causes mitochondrial functional impairment and decreases glucose tolerance in healthy volunteers. This is out of Sweden. Mikhail Flockhart is the lead author here. Uh, So yeah, tell us a bit more about it. Okay, well, I'll start by saying that this is a really complex study uh, that involved multiple muscle biopsies and measures of a whole bunch of different metabolic markers. So right now, what I'm going to do is give you the two-minute summary, which is not going to do it full credit. And I'm just going to say, if you really want to get into the fine details of this study, download it, read it. It's, It's an interesting one. But The short of it is what they were trying to do is look at the effects, what happens if you overload an athlete with high-intensity work, uh, what does it do to them metabolically? And particularly, what does it it do to the mitochondria and the muscles? And I haven't seen a lot of research on that, so at least not done this way. So it is actually a really interesting study to see we overloaded or overreached the athletes. What does that look like? The protocol here, they had uh, six women, six men, all recreationally active. This was not high-level cyclists. And they put them through a, a four-week overload uh, protocol. So basically, first week, they did light training with just limited interval work. The next week, they did what they called moderate training with uh, looks like four or three or four. Can't quite read that right. But basically a a few high intensity sessions. But then they had a fifth week where the goal was to overload the athletes and basically hit them five days in a row with hard, high intensity work. Now, I already know Rob has some issues with this because – this is, while they were trying to show, you know, here's the effects of doing too much high-intensity work, this really isn't the way an athlete would train. So, 
you're getting some interesting information, but it's always good to do a protocol. You say, let's see the effects of the way you would actually have an athlete train. Then finally, they had a recovery week where they had them back down and they wanted to see how much of their these physiological markers returned to baseline by the end of that recovery week. So that was the four-week protocol. As I said, they were taking biopsies throughout and really looking at the markers of mitochondrial activity. Um, I should say they were doing more than biopsies. They were also t- taking blood samples. There, there, was, there were multiple markers that were being checked. But the big ones were looking at mitochondrial activity, which is the, the powerhouses of our, our cells in terms of working with oxygen. Uh, they were looking at glucose metabolism, so our glucose, uh, the changes in the glucose tolerance of these athletes, changes in insulin. Uh, they also looked at markers of oxidative stress. What was really interesting, I know we're going to dive into this, so I'm not going to cover it too much right now, is what stayed in balance and what didn't stay in balance. And there were a few surprising things here. And I'll, I'll quickly go through the list right now. But like I said, I, I think the most interesting part of this conversation is going to be what they found uh, changed and what didn't. So their main conclusion, and and I'm really using their wording here, so we might later on give our opinion on this, but their main conclusion was that there is an upper limit on the amount of intense exercise that you can do before it hurts metabolic health. Again, their wording. We'll dive into that. In particular, a couple things that they saw that did get out of balance when you hit that high-intensity week or got to the end of that high-intensity week was, a first of all, a drop in what they called intrinsic mitochondrial respiration. I'm not going to dive into what that is. Again, That's if you're really interested, go read the study. But basically, it's, it's a way of measuring how functional the mitochondria remained. And what they are saying is, by the end of that high-intensity week, you were seeing some dysfunction in the mitochondria. Another thing that was quite interesting is they saw a reduction in glucose tolerance and an increase in insulin resistance. So this is basically the body's ability to manage glucose. Glucose, you know, a decrease in glucose tolerance and an increase in insulin resistance is something that you would see in somebody who's pre-diabetic. So normally... Our bodies maintain blood glucose levels uh, within a tight range. And what they were seeing in the study after all this high-intensity work was the athletes were having a harder time staying in that range. So sometimes glucose was going below, sometimes it was going above. Uh, And that's significant, and that's why they're tying all this back to uh, this sort of high-intensity work hurting metabolic health because you are essentially seeing the same sort of symptoms you would see in prediabetes. Now, whether in an athletic situation that is truly an issue with metabolic health or not is, I think, another thing we'll probably dive into here. Finally, and I'll fly through this so that we can get to Rob and his interpretations, some of the good things that they saw was there was still uh, that, that classic slight overreach and then a supercompensation, so these athletes definitely got stronger. While there was a dysfunction in the mitochondria in the short run, there was still 
mitochondrial biogenesis, which is a fancy way of saying you saw some mitochondrial growth. The big thing that was surprising was they expected to see a big increase in oxidative stress uh, since mitochondria are giant aerobic machine is our giant aerobic machinery and if they're being overtaxed you would expect they'd be pumping out a, a ton of reactive oxygen species but what they found was that oxidative stress stayed in balance and that was because the mitochondria actually reduced the quantity or concentration of h2o2 that they were pumping out so that was really interesting, and again, I, I really hope we dive into that. So a couple really interesting things from this this study that I think we're going to dive into, but I am just going to start with saying I found it fascinating, even if the protocol was a little different from what an athlete would normally do, I found it really interesting to say, okay, we've overreached an athlete, we eventually saw a supercompensation. Let's look at back at all the biomarkers and see what was actually going on in the body. So, Rob, what did I get wrong in that explanation? I don't think that you got anything wrong. <laughs> what did they get wrong? What, what <laughs> they got wrong? Uh, that, that's a great question, Chris. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back up to the statement that I made a little bit earlier of, of looking at things um, in, in an agnostic sort of fashion. Um, because I'm, I'm going to admit, when I first saw the title of this paper, I, I don't know how agnostic I was at that point in time. I was, you know, a little flared up, right? Because uh, here we are, a bunch of exercise physiologists sitting in a room, and you see something like this excessive training, you know, is leading to these negative sort of consequences. Um, you know, and so I, I had to back up for a second. I had to understand the study a little bit more deeply. Um, but, but to that point, what I wish the paper had been titled is um, an increase in glucose transport, an increase in lipid oxidation, in mitochondrial content and enzymatic activity, in glycogen, in hexokinase and glucagon synthase, mitofusion to remodeling, no decrease in antioxidant activity. All of these really positive things came out of this excessive training protocol. And, and based on the title, I felt like it was almost a you know, they were, they were reaching out to be a little inflammatory to get people interested because so many positive things did come out of this. And so that's the first thing I think they got wrong. Mm. And that's a good point, right? The start of the study, they talk about recent research that has been showing mitochondrial dysfunction is associated with type 2 diabetes and raise the question of, is the mitochondrial dysfunction a consequence of impaired glucose tolerance? Or is the mitochondrial dysfunction causing the glucose intolerance? And so they actually tried to address that with this study, which I don't think is appropriate because somebody who's training really hard is very different from somebody who's going into diabetes. But mm -hmm, mm -hmm. certainly, as you said, Rob, what they're really implying is you see some of the dysfunction, some of the health consequences that you would see in diabetics if you train too hard and you don't want those consequences. That's what they were at least implying. Let me ask a, a, a question that is a little bit of a, a tangent. How much control do the authors of a study have over what the title is versus the, the publisher of the journal that might want to elicit more attention to their publication? I feel like I've titled all my papers. Okay. Personally, you know, I don't, I don't know. Trevor, in your, in your experience, is, is it different? I've, I've, I haven't published in cell metabolism previously, but... Uh, 
Well, I know on our website, I tend to give Chris titles like this in my articles, and then the title that ends <laughs> up being on the bit, study. That's a little bit different, but uh, yeah. Uh, it ends up very different. So um, yeah, I think these are written by a bunch of scientists like me who don't know how to title a paper, and nobody ever fixes it. So Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm getting at the point of there, it sounds like they're skewing the title to be a little bit, like you said, Rob, inflammatory, whereas they could have gone a much different route and... and Obviously, the, what you just read off is a complete mouthful and would take up an entire page if they were to put it on it. So that wouldn't have worked. But they went the excessive training causes bad things, whereas they could have put excessive training causes some good things or, you know, some of the, so they could have taken a different direction. Yeah, I think that they certainly could have without question. Um, but at the same time, as I said before, when I took a step back and I, I started to actually read the study and, and to, uh, you know, settle down, let my blood pressure come down and take a little extra <laughs> right. blood pressure medication, then, uh, <laughs> right. you know, then I, I do think they actually had a lot of really good stuff uh, within the study. Um, and right. one thing that I found that was interesting was that when they had a finding, then they they delved a little deeper into that finding. They tried to understand why they had that finding. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and so it, it ended up creating a very robust study from an exploratory sort of sense. Uh, it Can wasn't... you give an example of, of the, one of those findings that they went a little deeper on? Well, what I'll say is when they saw that the IMR, or the intrinsic mitochondrial respiration, which is essentially a, a measure of how well each mitochondria itself is functioning, um, when they had that finding, then they said, oh, we oftentimes see this in a glucose intolerant situation. Let's go ahead and understand if that's happening in these athletes. And then from there, and, and this is what I think is the most interesting finding of the study, is they said, we saw this uh, glucose intolerance with our excessive training group. I wonder if we see this in just elite athletes in general. So they went out and they, they did 24-hour glucose monitoring on just individual elite athletes who weren't a part of the initial study. And they said, wow, they spent more time in a hyper glycemic, so too much blood sugar, and a hypo glycemic, too little blood sugar, as compared to the controls, you know, who were either, uh, Trevor, were they non-athletes or were they recreationally active? I, I don't remember. So in that, yeah, I mean, they were recreationally fit. Sure. So they weren't comparing the people off the couch but certainly not highly trained athletes. So you're, what you're saying is that elite athletes, these random, quote-unquote random elite athletes they tested, were showing signs that their glucose levels are, were fluctuating high and low, and they weren't, being, they weren't stable, really. Exactly. Yeah, you want right. glucose to be controlled within a relatively narrow window. Or what I'll say is the traditional view is that you want glucose controlled within a relatively narrow window. You know, for me personally, I, I don't know. I'm not knowledgeable enough to know if, if this glucose intolerance as a result of training and heavy activity, if that's truly an, a negative thing or is that a very normal, healthy response? Right. Because we know that athletes of this level tend to have a decrease in all-cause mortality. You know, right. ultimately, they're healthier throughout the rest of their life. And you know, if this was truly a negative situation, I don't think that we would necessarily see that. Right. Well, it's a really interesting question. As, as you said, that, that was one of the most intriguing parts of the study. And this is why every study ends with more research is needed. <laughs> exactly. And I think this is the part where you go, that's intriguing. There does seem to be a health consequence to these, these elite cyclists, yet we're not seeing them with higher levels of diabetes. As you said, we're not seeing them dying younger. So is that actually a, a negative health effect? 
more research is needed. More research is needed. Always. All right, Rob, tell us a little bit more about some of the findings they had here. Maybe oxidative stress. That was one of the the points that Trevor made at the, at the beginning. Yeah, you know, with the oxidative stress, I found it interesting that they were surprised that there wasn't much of a change. Looking at the results, they also didn't see a decrease in antioxidant activity. Uh, and I think that the two of those things go hand in hand. For me, what I found most interesting, though, was that they predicted that the H2O2 production decreased almost to to help balance that oxidative stress, in that it was done uh, more prophylactically, so to say, ahead of time um, to maintain that level of oxidative stress. And, you know, Trevor, I'm not I'm not familiar enough uh, to know, I mean, does the body work in that manner? I, I would have thought that we would have seen the increased oxidative stress, H2O2 production would have continued uh, until there was a negative sort of feedback loop, and then things perhaps would have dropped off. So all, we've talked about an, another study that, that actually addressed this with really high-level um, athletes in some of our previous episodes. They did a study with best of the best, so this was at the Dauphiné looking at their overall oxidative stress levels, so the, the combination of both production and antioxidants, and showed over the course of the Dauphiné, uh, these athletes actually saw a net decrease in oxidative stress. Now, they compared that to amateur athletes and showed how quickly amateur athletes could get overwhelmed by oxidative stress. So what we're seeing, one of the major adaptations you see in high-level cyclists, and this is a study with, with higher-level cyclists, um, or at least higher-level endurance athletes, is a very robust antioxidant system that can really keep oxidative stress in balance. Now, Trevor, did they see a decrease in mitochondrial respiration similar to what we saw in this study? I mean, I feel they like They didn't this, address it in that they study. They didn't address it, yeah. You know, because that's, you know, part of the reason they're saying that there was a no change in stress, right, is that perhaps there was a decrease in the mitochondrial respiration and that that is also helping balance, you know, the equation. What that previous study didn't talk about mitochondrial dysfunction, but what it did really address is a dramatic rise in SOD2 and all these other natural antioxidants, basically saying that increase in natural antioxidants exceeded the increase that you were seeing in in oxidative in, in ROS in, in reactive oxygen species so the net was actually a decrease in oxidative stress so it's interesting that they found that Trevor because you know um, I think one of the one of the strategies employed by a lot of professional cyclists especially in these multi-day multi-week events is supplementation with NAC to increase glutathione production, right? And, and to decrease, you know, reactive oxidative species from that increase in antioxidant profile. You know, do you think that something like that is, is warranted if the body's naturally producing more antioxidants and we're not necessarily seeing an increase in, in overall stress? Well, that's a really good question because that was a study at the Dauphiné and they did not bring up were any of these cyclists supplementing. So what I got out of this, I always look for what is an interesting story that I hear from a study. This whole antioxidant, the, the fact that oxidative stress stayed fairly stable and they were surprised by that. It led to a bigger picture for me of, so you see oxidative stress stay level where basically the mitochondria stop pumping out as much uh, ROS in order to maintain that level. 
you saw that drop in insulin, you saw that slight glucose intolerance, but what also happened was you saw an increase in GLUT4, which is the transporter used in muscles so that muscles can take up glucose. So even though insulin wasn't being produced as well, so insulin normally is what causes cells to take up the glucose, keep blood sugar at, at normal levels. Uh, you're almost seeing this secondary mechanism stepping up to say we're still going to keep glucose in balance. There were several things like this that you saw in the study where there were, there were changes that ultimately led to the body staying in balance even though it wasn't the normal way. So this goes back to something we talk about a lot in the show, which is homeostasis. The body likes to stay in homeostasis. It likes to stay in balance. And what I really saw here is during that excessive training week, the really interesting ways in which the body was saying, you are stressing me. There are certain things that I can't keep normal, but I'm going to find creative ways to do my best to maintain homeostasis. So it maintained oxidative stress. It did its best to maintain blood glucose levels by upregulating GLUT4. Uh, so it was addressing these stressors. But what you might be seeing is when you have too much training, and we'll get to the methods in a minute, this was a ridiculous week. When you have too much training, the body's going to do its best to maintain homeostasis, but it's going to prioritize the things that it, it sees as most damaging. So it doesn't want excess raw, so it's going to prioritize that. Uh, letting your blood sugar levels get too high or too low can be very damaging to you, so it's going to prevent that. But it might come at costs of other things that the body just says, I can't maintain those. Um, and I think that's what they're getting at with some of this mitochondrial dysfunction. And ultimately what they said is some of these things explain why when you really train very hard, um, you see that ability to, to go hard, to do that big jump, that 30-second effort kind of goes away. So that's what I found really interesting was, uh, I, to me, I'm seeing a picture of the body trying to maintain homeostasis saying I can't do it perfectly, so making decisions of what it's ultimately going to let fall apart a little bit. Mm -hmm. If you make rats do prolonged swimming, which is drop them in a tank and make sure they don't die <laughs> yeah, for hours, then you see a 50% increase in GLUT4 transport within like 16 hours or something like that. And within two days, there's a 200% increase in GLUT4 transporters. Because of that very short time course to adaptation there, I would almost argue that the GLUT4 increase comes prior to any changes within the insulin side of things. And I think that that GLUT4 is really important, right? Because from this study, even though they did excess training, they didn't necessarily see a decrease in glycogen content within the muscles, right? Well, that was the other thing that surprised them is you, you saw a decrease in, in glycolysis, but glycogen stayed quite, uh, quite robust. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that it's one thing we have to understand that we're talking about healthy volunteers, right? These, these are individuals who did less than five hours of endurance training, but were otherwise pretty active. And so the systems that they have are not, say, up to snuff with maybe a lot of people that are listening here that are training more regularly or, or anything else. You know, but because of this increase in GLUT4, because of the increase in hexokinase, which helps lock that uh, glucose within the muscle, um, you know, they were able to adapt very, very quickly to the energy expenditure that they were doing, to the high-intensity work they were doing. 
and to trap a lot of that glucose that's floating around their bloodstream to trap that within the working muscle itself to prepare their body for the next day, for the next hard session that's going to be coming along. You know, but with the insulin side of things, is it possible that the insulin resistance is coming from almost this this lower blood sugar because things are getting pulled into the muscle more? Or do you think that it's uh, maybe, uh, you know, the glucose intolerance is just coming from a different system that's getting worn out down the line? That's a really good question. So you're right. They just compared the different stages. So they compared the excessive training to the moderate training to the light training. They didn't say... So they certainly said you saw this rise in GLUT4 and you saw the, the decrease in, in glucose tolerance during the excessive training phase, but they didn't say which came first. They just said it was during that phase. So I can't tell you which of those two came first. My initial interpretation, this is just a thought, and please give me a reaction to this, is these athletes are training really hard. They're, they're doing high intensity every single day. Again, their body's trying to stay in balance. And to a degree, their body is basically saying, I really need to prioritize getting glucose to these muscles because they're having a high demand right now. I don't want as much glucose going to other tissues because the muscles need it the most right now. So that's, you're, you're, I was interpreting as kind of a simultaneous decrease in insulin uh, with a rise in the GLUT4 to really prioritize where the glucose because insulin is indiscriminate. When you release insulin, all cells respond and start taking it. Yeah. Trevor, I think that might be the smartest thing you've ever said. And, and I fully 100% agree. Let's end the show. It's a high note. There's nothing more to talk about. <laughs> I think I take that as a compliment, but I'm detecting some sarcasm. No, so. no, no sarcasm. No sarcasm. I, I, I fully agree. I would love... I would love some research to back that up. I think that that's a really interesting theory. I can see that being 100% plausible, um, you know, but at the same time, we can't necessarily know anything until we, uh, you know, disprove some null hypotheses on this one. Right. My, my question, I know you shouldn't encourage anyone, wouldn't encourage anyone to uh, maybe change how they train based on a single study, but we're talking to an audience that is looking for takeaways and messages here. What is the message based on this study? Is there anything you should do differently? Obviously, don't train like a ding-dong and ride, f do five hit sessions in a row. Uh, we didn't actually talk about those methods, but that's what we're getting at here, and we're essentially saying that's more than excessive in a sense. So, so my first conclusion from all this discussion is – Rob is the only person that rivals you, Chris, in terms of making fun of me for being old and Canadian. <laughs> I'm a little disturbed by the fact that you just complimented me. <laughs> and I'm waiting for it to come back around. It will. It will. I, He's, do, I do it to keep you off balance. Always guessing, you know, keeps you I, nimble. I am really off balance right now. <laughs> you're trying to stay in homeostasis and you're struggling. I need my insults quick. Somebody make fun of me. <laughs> you're Canadian, by the way. Thank you. Okay, there we go. Is there any... A uh, solid message you would take from this study in terms of how you should change or would change training? Yeah, it's a great question. Why did we talk about this? Um, you know, and, and sometimes I struggle with this because I'm not in the world of pure laboratory physiology anymore. 
I'm more in the world of applied physiology. How do we take this and, and actually utilize the information? And that was one of my initial issues with this study. And, and I think that that's why we have issue perhaps with the methods that were chosen, right? Because the, the insane amount of high intensity that they did in a serial manner, right? One week of low, one week of moderate, one week of excessive. Nobody would ever train in that manner. There would be uh, maybe some lower intensity days. There would maybe be uh, weeks between these sessions. It's not practical. But what this is helping us understand is um, all that that um, training methodology was, was a perturbation to the system. It was never intended to be training. They never said uh, doing three by 10 by 30 30s it's not about training. It was what can we do to really stress out this system and how does the body respond? And I think that when we talk about, you know, the the nuance of it, it leads to a deeper understanding, right? And, and we would not have perhaps found these negative results, I'm going to call them, right? The glucose intolerance, uh, some of the mitochondrial function impairment, um, if we hadn't gone out and done, not we, if they hadn't gone out and done something silly, to tell you the truth. So I think that just from a, a truly deep understanding, uh, then this is incredible knowledge. Um, from a, how does this affect my training? I don't think that was ever the purpose or the function of this research. Right. Rob, that was damn smart. Not the smartest thing I've ever heard you say. Close, smart. pretty close, huh? Are, are right. we, are we going to have a compliment off? You're yes, starting and, to. And and this is actually disgusting. scaring me more than the uh, the insult off I was uh, expecting. No, <laughs> so. Nobody can see it, but Trevor's hair is on point right now. <laughs> <laughs> Yours, not so much. Ago. Not so much. <laughs> no, I actually, so, yes, actually, I, I really did mean that. And I fully agree. There, of course there is, you meant it. You're Canadian. So, so. It is Canada Day. Today's July 1st, isn't it? But Happy America Day is coming in a few and more. The American told us that it was Canada, Canada Day, Day and not the Canadian. Yes, this and is, not the fake Canadian in the room either. This is the anniversary of the day. A bunch of Canadians went to England and said, could we please sort of have independence? You can still have ultimate authority over us, but we sort of want to have our own government. Is that okay? You didn't shoot anybody to get that? No. Oh, you missed out. <laughs> I, where were we? we? We were talking about the the takeaways from this and and what a listeners uh, learn right and do differently. So the thing I so yeah I think Rob you were spot on and that's what I got from this. There is nothing that you can take from this and say this will impact your training. I think they did want to say there's such a thing as too much training, but they even did point out there was evidence of supercompensation from this. What I took from this is we talk all the time about. Training is about exactly that. You have to put a stress on the body that the body can't tolerate and then have a rest period where the body repairs and supercompensates. This is one of the first studies that says when we talk about putting a stress on the body that the body can't handle, what exactly does that stress look like? Which I found fascinating. Seeing this body trying to stay in homeostasis, not able to fully doing that, be able to do that, but finding really creative ways to make sure the really important things stay in homeostasis. To me, that was all very fascinating. As we said, that now raised a whole bunch of, now we need to study this, we need to study this, and we need to study this, which is, I think, the, the biggest thing to get out of this study. So, Trevor, 
as a final note, it seems like this study has caused a few waves. Do you want to comment on that? There's been some some responses by some prominent names. Yeah, I found this really interesting. This study came out two months ago, and Dr. John Hawley, who we've actually had on the show, who's a, a very respected um, physiologist, has already written a response to it. He was, and it's, we won't go into it, but if anybody's interested, so it's in the journal of, I'm not looking at it, you've got it right here, uh, Nature Reviews. So it was just a, a two-page response, and he pointed out the, the key findings of the study, but also raised a, a few criticisms. One of them was basically what, what Rob was saying was, this isn't really the way people train. So you have to factor that. And he also brought up a valid point that this was muscle biopsies looking in vitro. So it wasn't looking at the full muscle, full body response. It was just taking a very small part of the muscle. Hey, listeners. If you've been listening to Fast Talk for a while, you've probably heard a few of my hot weather racing stories, like the time I tricked a rival team into feeding me some of their water bottles. Or a few of the times where I didn't do quite so well. Stories like those show how critical it is to beat the heat and stay hydrated. In our new pathway, we explore exercise in the heat. We show how to manage heat, dial in hydration, and fuel for performance in hot conditions. This new pathway taps Dr. Stephen Chung, the internationally recognized expert in thermal physiology, and sports scientist Robert Pickles, Lindsay Golich, Dr. Steven Seiler, plus, of course, Ryan Kohler and myself. This pathway busts myths and reveals science-based best practices for beating the heat. Topics include rider body types, mental strategies, sports strength salinity, drinking versus dosing, muscle cramping where you know I have a strong bias, getting acclimated, drink to thirst, and how heat affects sports nutrition. Take a look at our new exercise in the heat pathway at fasttalklabs.com. All right, let's move on to the next study we want to discuss. Uh, this one was in sports medicine, the importance of quote-unquote durability in the physiological profiling of endurance athletes. Lead author here is Ed Maunder. Second author here is Dr. Steven Seiler. Um, Maunder is in New Zealand. Seiler, as we know, is in Norway. Tell us a little bit about this study, Trevor. So again, I'll give the, uh, the two-minute summary, and then we'll let Rob uh, dive into this. So important first to define durability, because they talk a lot about it in this study, and, and we've discussed this, so durability or, or repeatability, we, we use a variety of terms. But they define it here as the time of onset and magnitude of deterioration in physiological characteristics over time during prolonged exercise. So that's a mouthful basically saying there's a certain point if you train long and hard enough where things are going to change. Physiology is going to change and perhaps the numbers that you were using at the start of that workout don't really apply anymore. And, and that's really what they're trying to get at is saying uh, the gist of the study is they start by talking about the different ways of profiling athletes. So the key metrics that we tend to measure, VO2 max, anaerobic capacity, economy, substrate utilization threshold. And you can tell I'm trying to rush through this because I want to get to Rob because this is his wheelhouse. But basically talked about those, talked about the different ways of testing it, such as doing critical power, doing intermittent exercise tests, doing an MLSS test, 
I had actually seen a previous draft of this where they wrote a very thorough explanation of each in the final published copy. They, they were really quick explaining each and trying to get to this concept of durability. And the gist of this is basically saying all of these test methods, all these things that have that we tend to measure are always done fresh. And they don't account for the fact that over time, these variables might change. And we really actually don't know how they change and the sort of impact they have on you. So the classic one they talked about was cardiac drift. You do a, a long, semi-hard training ride. At a certain point, you're going to see heart rate go up relative to power or pace. And they said it could be that's completely benign drift in whatever training zones you were using at the beginning. You can keep using those. Or it's possible that that means that you're, if you're doing your training zones by heart rate, they have shift, shifted. Um, and if you don't shift with them, you could start actually un under training. Or conversely, they have shown a really long exercise, so up to six hours. You can actually see heart rate decline a little bit. And if you stay with your heart rate zones in that scenario, you would actually be overtraining a little bit. So, and they basically said, we don't know. So we need to take a look at this. More research is Do, needed. Exactly. So there's <laughs> another more research is needed. Yes. And see this impact of, of durability. The other thing they brought up uh, that I, uh, we can discuss, will come out in our discussion is this durability is different in everybody. And they actually showed a chart of different athletes where you saw some, there was quite dramatic change in, in that cardiac drift over time, while other athletes actually maintained it pretty, pretty well throughout the throughout a four-hour ride. So, Rob, that's my really short summary because I really am excited to hear your response to all this. I don't know what to say about this study. <laughs> He's left speechless I, I by am, this study. I am. I'm left speechless by this because um, I think it was a great half-step, to tell you the truth. Uh, and the reason I say it's a half-step is I wish that they had just done the study of does this stuff matter or not, to tell you the truth. So you're saying that they've kind of defined that this is an area that needs more research without actually taking a step forward into that research. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But it, exactly, the reason for that is I think that a lot of people know and understand this already. Did this need to be said? What physiologist sort of doesn't think about these concepts? I know that I certainly do and did. Um, and that the cardiac drift question has been asked on internet forums around the world for as long as internet forums have, have been online. And so, yeah, you, here's the thing. I fully agree with everything in this study, you know, as I typically do with Dr. Seiler. He's, he's terrific and, you know, life is grand. But what, what's new in this, Trevor, I guess, is, is really is my question. And, and I don't want to be overly critical of it like that. Um, but as I said, this, this is sort of just known in, in common knowledge, right? I think that, yeah, sure. It's important that it's gotten out there. Maybe it's gotten out there officially. Maybe it spurs somebody to actually do the research at this point in time. And maybe this is a struggle that I have as a scientist, right? One of the, one of the most difficult things when I was working directly with athletes is, is knowing what was common knowledge for myself and common knowledge for people, people in the industry, and that wasn't actually common knowledge for everyone else. And in, in oftentimes I would sort of forget or I would assume incorrectly. And, and so, yeah, there is the positive benefit of, of getting that information out there that we, asking the question to make sure everybody knows that we need to ask the question. 
but I would would have loved if this group just just kind of got down to it and and started figuring these things out. So they did share some data from unpublished studies. I actually recognize some of this data because I know that Dr. Seiler's been been working on this. As a matter of fact, there is one chart here of a particular ride, which looks awful lot like a ride that Dr. Seiler sent me that he did on Zwift. I remember this from uh, from the Twitter sphere, if I remember correctly. Yep. If I think back a few months, I, I it, it crossed my mind too that that's exactly what this was. So I think you have this spot on. I don't think they they wrote this to say we have some answers. I do know that Dr. Seiler has been spending a ton of time focusing on this, trying to come up with some of these answers, particularly he's been trying to find a way of how do we measure this, which is actually surprisingly hard. I think ultimately this was just about here's where we're at and and raising that red flag of, yes, we've all talked about this, but we really do need to dive into this and figure this out. Yeah, I think that if we get into the question of how do we do it, you know, is it is it a training study? Is it, you know, choosing one method of constant heart rate or constant power or, you know, dealing with the drift and then seeing the outcome, you know, 12 weeks later or whatever that is. The other thing that would be really interesting to me is, um, you know, analyzing, say, lactate data. I think that perhaps these profiles exist if we do a deeper dive into, say, the lactate profile or or even the critical power graph, you know, the, the power duration chart, um, and, and more of an analysis than just saying, oh, what is your watt per kilo at four millimol? What is, what is your power at LT1? You know, for me, when I was doing a lot of interpretation of, of lactate graphs and, and physiology results, if, if you looked at, you know, Trevor, someone like yourself or, or Chris, you know, you guys are both, you know, really, really strong cyclists. I would know that just by the shape of your graph without ever seeing your weight or your power or anything else in, in how your baselines react and how you step between different stages and what your maximal lactates were. And I would be able to tell that you guys likely have more durability because of your higher training status than someone else who came into the lab. And again, this is without actually seeing the numbers, so to say, but just how the tests progress from stage to stage. And I believe it would be the same thing if we look at critical power. Now, all of this is anecdotal, something that I've learned from testing numerous, numerous athletes. And, and what was very fortunate for me was that I was able to work with athletes of all levels, literally somebody beginning cycling, never doing activity um, to people that were world class, you know, absolute, you know, pro tour peloton riders. Uh, and and you you begin to see these nuances and these differences. And, you know, I've always said that with lab testing, anyone can prick a finger. It, it takes literally no skill to get a little blood sample and put it in a, a pipette and put it in your YSI or, or the handheld ones now. I'm still old school in my lactate analyzer preferences. The real knowledge comes from the interpretation of that graph. What does this actually mean? And, and I do believe and I challenge anyone that's doing these physiological tests to go deeper than just looking at what threshold is, you know, to understand how are you choosing threshold and what does that actually mean, um, you know, in, in terms of that interpretation. 
So I just want to take a wild guess here and, and see if I, I got this right or not. But I think I know one of the ways that you could see better durability in a lactate curve. And I'm wondering if this is what you were thinking about. So I've seen lactate curves in some highly trained athletes where for four or five, six stages, those lactate levels are just absolutely flat. And then as they approach that um, LT2, that anaerobic threshold, that's where you see it suddenly just kind of kick up and then the graph quickly goes up to um, well, well over uh, four millimoles. I've seen other athletes who are less trained where even though they stay below two millimoles, even at very low stages, you see a very slow rise in the lactates. Um, you don't see that nice flat curve. And, and then it just kind of gradually goes into the, the, the curve that you, you would see as they approach threshold. My guess is those athletes would not have as good a durability because even though it's very, very small, you're seeing even at low wattages, they're, they're already dealing with a, very, a small stressor. Yeah, Trevor, I think that the, I would refer to that as an upward sloping baseline, okay. right? And, and we can infer some understanding about lactate production and lactate clearance from that. Um, I think that also those athletes that have the upward sloping baselines, you know, they probably have an increased anaerobic contribution, even at relatively low workloads. Uh, it's not overwhelming because they are able to clear at that point in time. But if you take that person that has the higher anaerobic contribution, you know, um, I think that you take them out into the field and you do a 20-minute test on them and then you do a 30-minute test on them and then you have them do an hour time trial, you're going to see a relatively large delta between those scores on those individuals. You know, for myself, I, I kind of in some regard fall into this category because I'm a sprinter. I mean, I, I grew up racing 400 hurdles and 110 hurdles and switched to cycling later in life. And, you know, if, if you look at my build, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, bigger than I should be in the thighs and the calves, you know, to be an endurance cyclist uh, because of those type 2 muscle fibers. And, um, you know, if we take sort of field testing from me, um, my 20-minute and 30-minute, you know, deltas between my performances there, it's a bigger drop-off than it should be. You know, if, if we take individuals like this, and this is getting into a bit of a tangent, if I were to do 95% uh, of my 20-minute effort to determine an FTP, it would be way, way above what it actually should be, way above a true sustainable FTP number for me. And that's, again, because of that anaerobic contribution. So when I'm determining my numbers, if I only have 20 minutes in me, then I'll take 92% of that. If I got a good 30-minute effort in me, then I can take 95% of a 30-minute effort, right? But so through this field testing, through lab testing, I think that we can begin to understand the durability, right? And durability, as they're sort of pointing out, is very individual. For me, if you ask my durability in a repeated sprint test, I could be pretty durable there. You know, in a crit race, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to be faring better, Right? But if you put my durability in the context kind of as they're discussing, you know, high-intensity effort levels or drift throughout a, um, you know, a long-duration ride, you know, then my durability is going to be relatively low, especially compared to you know, somebody like yourself and Chris and, and like I said, a lot of more um, you know, people with a, an aerobic you know, sort of makeup as a general statement. So you're saying that... With more research, there might be a way to give someone a durability profile. You could be durable on one end of the spectrum or on the other end of the spectrum, i.e. you could be durable 
quote-unquote durable for sprints or durable for long distance. And maybe there would be some people that would kind of be that all-arounder that would be somewhat durable at everything. Yeah, I think that you could do that. And I also think that you could do it from relatively common measures that we're doing today. I don't think that this is a brand new test. I think this is a reinterpretation of a lot of the data that we're already gathering on people. Well, the thing that comes to mind for me, and I can't remember, did you overlap at all with Dr. Inigo Samalan? I did, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm, certainly. So he was very big on his 10-minute lactate test protocol because he was trying to get at that durability. It's not just stages, yeah. Right, it's not just what sort of lactates are you hitting at a stage, but can you sustain those lactates across that stage and found... Uh, that's really one of the biggest differences you saw on the top, top cyclists versus lower level cyclists is they might start a stage of very similar lactates, but that top level cyclist is not really going to change over the 10 minutes where somebody who's not as good, they just don't have the durability. Their lactates are going to go up over 10 minutes and you might not see that in a three or five minute stage. I never did ask you what you thought of that protocol. You know, it, it was an interesting, it was an interesting mix of the more traditional, you know, say a four minute stepwise test. And then also the protocol utilized for maximal lactate steady state. It was a way to kind of understand a MLSS number, but in one laboratory visit, I think that it produced uh, perhaps slightly different results. If you looked at the interpretation of it, But I also don't think that it produced anything that was dramatically different from a more traditional stepwise test. And so in in this one, it's certainly a personal preference. I've used both uh, to great success, and I would definitely support the use of it. Uh, But I'm not going to say that it's an absolute necessary uh, protocol. For any of our listeners who don't know, the MLSS test, this is just brutal. You do 30 minutes. So you try to basically approximate what your MLSS is. And then you do a, a series of 30-minute tests right around that range. And it's the highest one where in the 10 to 30-minute part of the test, you see a rise in lactates as less than one millimole. It, it is a tough test to, to do one all-out 30-minute effort at a given wattage is tough to have to do multiple Taking lactates the whole time. And and it's, I mean, in my understanding of the test, right, it's traditionally multiple days. Yes. Day one is a traditional stepwise test to to kind of understand the range that you're then going to have the test on day two. Because you can't go out and do that, uh, you know, 30-minute or long-duration stages, you know, at 25-watt increments like you might normally do. Because otherwise, the person would be there for, for four or five hours in the lab. And this is also why it's used in in studies. It's used in the lab. You would never see elite cyclists agree to do this because it would kill their training for over a week. Trevor, I'm a big picture sort of guy, and I need to ask the question, does this matter? Does the durability concept matter? And the reason that I bring that up is we kind of understand that this is happening in the background I can understand it maybe being important for characterizing someone, for identifying a strength or a weakness, but in day in and day out training, does it matter? And, and I'm going to posit that um, I, when I'm prescribing training zones, I, most everybody describes a range, right? And base is not, say, 200 watts. We would typically say that a base or a zone one or whatever system you want to use you know, is, is between, say, a 175 and a 205 watts. And I've always, always, always advocated that somebody trains toward the middle 
of their zone, right? Because we're understanding sort of that the stimulus in that range is about the same, and then we're accumulating that stress over time. And so if, if somebody is getting a recommendation of training in the middle of their zone, say 190 watts, does cardiac drift, does any of this stuff moving up or down matter if, if we're staying within that range that we know is appropriate? That's a good question. You know, getting athletes to actually train in the middle of the zone versus one watt below the top end of the zone is really hard to do because that's what they they tend to like to do. That's why you cheat their zones down without telling <laughs> assuming, them. Yeah, <laughs> assuming that the zone is actually accurate, right? Well, so my answer to the question, uh, because I, I am a big believer in the importance of durability, I think it's an important thing to train. And I think as a coach, it's a really important thing to have a metric of, is this improving? Because it goes back to that good old expression of, it's not how hard you can hit a five-minute climb, it's how hard you can hit a five-minute climb after four hours. And you have a lot of people who can be super strong on the start line, but when they get to the end of the race, it's not there because they don't have the durability. So I think it's really important to train, and as a coach, I want to be able to see, are my athletes improving? Uh, Trevor, that's because you're still stuck in the Peloton. And frankly, when I'm trying to snipe a Strava KOM, I'm not doing it after four hours, Trevor. I'm warming up on the trainer and I'm riding straight to the climb. With your skin suit on. That, with my, that I need to haul myself up, you know. Uh, so you're, you're, you're looking at it from the wrong perspective. Our listeners, Trevor, <laughs> they're not in the pro Peloton, man. He's just assumed all of He said our listeners. Wow. Well, I'm not part of the team now? <laughs> you can be. You're doing a great job uh, today. I'm liking I think... this. And yes, you Smack me down. So, yes, if you ride no more than 30 minutes, and in those 30 minutes you go for multiple Strava KOMs, screw all this. Why did we even talk about this yeah, study? Durability is irrelevant for you. Is that a running theme? Why are we even talking about these stuff? I mean, it's like, starting to wonder that myself. <laughs> With that, should we move on to the final study? This is kind of the simplest of all of them. Is it? All right. Well, it's Frontiers in Physiology is the journal it published in back in May of 2021, so not too long ago, entitled The Aerobic and Anaerobic Contribution During Repeated 30-Second Sprints in Elite Cyclists. And this comes from a Norwegian group, the lead author being Nikki Winfield Almquist. But you will notice the third author is Dr. Ronstedt. Yes, he's buried in there. And that is a name that probably a lot of listeners have heard of because he has this famous, somewhat famous, Ronstad protocol. We've had Dr. Chung do some workshops on our site to pick apart some of the studies he's done and some of these protocols that he's sort of innovated. So tell us a little bit about this particular study, Trevor. So the short, short version is they're really trying to look at the impact of um, repeated sprints on high-level cyclists. And, and in one of the studies, they, or they, they do at the end of it compare them to amateur cyclists to see if there's a difference. But in the particular protocols here, they only used elite cyclists. So they had two protocols. One was just a single day. It was a three-hour ride, so they're actually getting into this durability concept here too. At the end of e or towards the end of each hour, the cyclists would do three 30-second sprints separated by four minutes. So you'd really bring down the power and recover in that four minutes. 
and then ride at about 50% for the, the next hour and then repeat the three sprints. So they did this three times. And what they were looking at was whether they were able to maintain power and they were also looking at how much of that sprint power came from aerobic energy systems versus anaerobic energy systems. And the short version is you actually, in these elite cyclists, saw from set to set to set, so from the first set to the third set, uh, there was really no change. But within the sets, you saw a decrease in the power from the first to the second to the third, and most of that loss was from anaerobic sources. The second study, so they used a similar protocol at the very beginning before they, they did their intervention. They did a series of four sprints separated by four minutes to measure their total power and then their anaerobic and aerobic contribution. Then these cyclists would do a 14-day training camp, high volume. So one group just did all the volume. The other group added in a total, so not sets of, but a total of 12 30-second sprints every third day during the 14-day camp. So that was the only difference between the two groups. Then they had a recovery, and then they retested them with those four 30-second sprints separated by four minutes to see if their, their power improved and to see if their energy contributions changed at all. And the short version of it is you saw no improvement in the group that didn't do sprints during the camp. Um, in the group that did add those sprints, and again, not a lot of sprints during that camp, uh, you saw improvement in their overall power, and that mostly came from anaerobic sources, that improvement. That's the, the short, short version of it. Did I miss anything, Rob? Uh, no, I don't think that you did at all. And interestingly, I read this study after reading the Seiler study. Um, I just kind of went like favorite authors, like down the list. I'm taking these two first. And uh, I honest, I thought that you were doing a durability theme, Trevor, when, when I read these two back to back, because, you know, I immediately saw that durability uh, concept breaking out in here, even though it wasn't necessarily named. Um, I saw that too. That was accidental. Perfect. It was serendipitous. Yes. No, it's kind of neat, isn't it? Yeah. I think, you know, the big, big takeaway from this um, for me is, is training specificity, right? I mean, if you train sprints, you're going to sprint better. Um, and while I agree that it wasn't a lot of sprint training, multiple 30-second sprints throughout a multi-hour ride is, is actually quite grueling if yes. you think about it. You, you know, I mean, we've all sort of been there. 30 seconds is a really difficult time to hit because you're all in and you are hurting by the end of that. Um, and so, yeah, these riders put in work. Uh, and they got better at what they were doing, right? Their their durability increased. Um, I, what I thought was in, interesting was that throughout the course of the ride, the average power of the three sprints did not necessarily diminish, right? right. So they did three sprints at hour one, at hour two, and, and hour three, essentially, and the average of those. So they were able to fully recover in the low intensity riding in between there, even though we saw a detrimental effect within each sprint set. Yeah, no, that was, so that again goes back to that durability concept. And yeah, they really pointed out when you are talking about elite cyclists, this shows that in a race, they have this ability to keep going hard, going hard, as long as they get some recovery time, 
they aren't going to see that big a drop in their power, if any at all. They, they can keep doing this. Now, they did compare this, and I, I didn't remember if they said whether this was previous studies that they had done, this group had done, or another group had done. But they did have similar results from another study in amateurs, and you did not see the same thing. You actually saw a big drop in the anaerobic contribution. You saw a big drop in power, and you didn't see them fully restore their power. So that's one of the big differences. Uh, could, could we help listeners out there understand what, how did they define amateur versus elite? Is that worth mentioning? It, it is, and, and the reason it's interesting is I don't know that these were really elite riders. To, to tell you the truth, if we go through the demographics of these riders, they were they're strong. They weren't amazing. Exactly. They're better than I am, but uh, we're talking body mass, uh, 76 kilos. That's about 167 pounds. Height was 183 centimeters. That's about six feet tall. Um, so relatively tall and relatively skinny. Um, their training volume was uh, 55 hours over 30 days. So we're talking about 13-ish hours per week. And their power output at 4 millimoles of lactate was uh, 4.3 watts per kilo. If we take the average kilo, then that's about 326 watts. Um, their VO2 max was 73.4. At their body size, that's 5.5 liters, um, which is good, but not incredible. Um, and their watt max uh, at the end of their VO2 protocol was 6.3 watts per kilo, or 480 watts. These riders, in my opinion, were almost in a no man's land. They weren't strong enough to be a strong, larger rider that, that's a powerful one-day classic sort of rider. And they weren't small enough to be more of a GC, say, type of rider. They're sort of like me, not, not quite small enough and not quite strong enough. So particularly, you look at that uh, you know, 4.3 watts per kilogram at 4 millimoles. If you want to be racing in the professional peloton, you need to be well over 5. So these are more like elite amateur racers, perhaps. Yeah, this would be like a decent, probably a really good Cat 2, maybe an okay Cat 1. Mm -hmm. yep. Okay. I'd agree with that. So, But yeah, no, I just looked through and I couldn't find anything about the selection, how they in particular selected these athletes. Later on, when they compare it to amateurs, they just said amateurs. You know, It wasn't even part of this study, so they really didn't go into the details there. Very good. So unfortunately, can't answer that question for you. Trevor, can we talk a little bit about the aerobic versus anaerobic contribution of this? Yes, um, I was hoping you'd go there. <laughs> you know, I found the results to be um, certainly understandable. I would assume that a decrease in anaerobic contribution is what's leading to the decrease in sprint performance, and the aerobic would uh, maintain relatively similar in terms of contribution just because of the durability, if we use that word again, of the aerobic versus anaerobic system. Um, I'd, I'd love to get your comment on that, but I'd also love to talk more about the gross efficiency method that they used for determining this. And, and I don't want to get in the weeds too much, but I, I found this to be a very interesting and perhaps difficult manner to, to try to elucidate the aerobic versus anaerobic situation. And, and I understand that they chose it. I'm sure they had great reasons to, but there were other things that seemed a little bit more obvious to me that, that might have been a, a more straightforward choice. Rob, that is the smartest thing I've ever heard you say. <laughs> Man, you guys have heard the second and the most smart thing ever. In one day, we got it all right here. That's because I, I uh, had three shots of espresso this morning. The extra one was for good luck. There we go. Mm, 
Yeah, I actually circled the same part and actually put a big question mark beside it. And th they do point out it's very easy to figure out the aerobic contribution. You just hook them up to a metabolic cart. You can actually measure that. There is no direct way to measure the anaerobic contribution. So they talk about the different methods. There's multiple ways that ha in the literature to do this. And as you said, they went with this efficiency method and brought up essentially that durability concept of saying efficiency changes over time. So we chose to use this efficiency method um, to determine the anaerobic contribution. But maybe I should read this because I, I actually want to hear your response to this. Let me find this. The aerobic contribution during the first 30-second sprint was calculated using the GE determined immediately before the first sprint. The aerobic contribution during the last 30-second sprint was calculated using the GE determined six minutes after the last sprint. Subsequently, the anaerobically attributable mechanical power was calculated by subtracting the aerobically attributable mechanical power from the mean power output of each 30-second sprint. So basically saying calculated the aerobic and then the anaerobic contribution was total power minus the aerobic. I was, the, the whole figuring out the aerobic contribution why 30 seconds before the sprint? Why six minutes after the sprint? And, and why the second one was the average of the two, right? They weren't right. able to calculate the middle sprint that they did in these sets. And so they averaged the two. And that's just assuming a linear decrease between them. And, and we don't right. even know that that's a correct assumption. Yeah, I put a big question mark beside this. And I admit that's I, I left it there. You actually brought another study that brings up this question of efficiency. It sounds like you really had big questions about this and, and dived into it. So why don't you, you jump into that? Trevor, I brought two additional studies, actually. Um, one was the study that they referenced when they chose this gross efficiency. Um, they had referenced some previous work that had been done. And, and frankly, this gross efficiency method was foreign to me prior to this. And so I wanted to understand that a little bit more. Um, the second study that I brought, you know, be, because this is essentially, I feel like me going back to grad school, I feel like I walked in today to take a grad school exam. Uh, so I threw it back old we'll school. give me your score. Tomorrow. There you are. Good luck. Not by the end of the uh, show. Sorry. <laughs> um, you know, I threw it back old school and, and grabbed a, a study that we had covered um, in my grad school days with my advisor, uh, Dan Heil. So thanks. Thanks, Dan. Your education is, is coming back uh, full circle. Finally. Uh, and that, finally, I know. <laughs> and that study was um, was actually from 1975, and it was from uh, Glenn Geyser and George Brooks, uh, right? So, so two just, I mean, amazing founders of this. And, and that was looking at muscular efficiency during steady rate cycling. But if we go back to the gross efficiency concept, you know, this wasn't even like a true gross efficiency in the whole scheme of things, right? Uh, what they were doing, and, and I need to sort of read this equation – it's GE, gross efficiency, can be defined as the ratio between the mechanical power output and power input, in which power input can be calculated from VO2, which is expressed in liters per second, and the oxygen equivalent. So that power input, now they go even deeper. It's VO2 times 4,940 times RER times 16,040. I just feel like there's a lot of assumptions and equations here, right? Yes. They're not even talking about good old-fashioned gross efficiency. They're, they're sort of trying to extrapolate this based on the indirect calorimetry that's happening with the person in the RER, and they're trying to maybe make it more robust than gross efficiency. But at the same time, we're introducing so many unknown variables into uh, 
you know, a, a, a research protocol where we've already had questions about why did they do it immediately before? Why did they do it six minutes after? Why was the middle taken as the average of those two? We just have multiple layers of questions stacking up on top of each other. Yep. No, I, I totally understand. This is a more challenging problem than you would think. You would just go, why not just measure oxygen consumption? And then, as they said, subtract that from the, the total power. But the issue is there, there's this thing called oxygen uh, deficit. When you're talking about a 30-second sprint, if you measure the oxygen consumption during that 30-second sprint and say that was the total uh, you know, aerobic contribution to the 30 seconds, you're going to get it wrong because there is a delay effect. So you have to figure out how long after that sprint do you keep measuring to get the true aerobic contribution to the sprint effort. And that's what they're trying to figure out here. But I agree with you. They had to make a whole lot of assumptions. So the question is, why didn't they just take it out of the oxygen conversation in general? And I almost feel like this is a single issue, right? They chose this gross efficiency method because of the change in gross efficiency uh, over time. And they wanted almost to understand, again, that durability issue without naming the durability issue in this. And so they were looking for a measure that might change over time as these riders rode, you know, for three hours. I think a much cleaner way of doing this would have been from the mechanical side of things and would have gone with critical power and, and W prime, you know, your anaerobic capacity. And it's interesting because the paper that they reference that they got this gross efficiency, you know, sort of validated in was actually a paper where the second author was Phil Skiba, right, who does a lot of work in, in the critical power sort of theory. And that paper laid out a lot of the amazing benefits or, or how critical power can be accurate across so many different situations. And there was also questions that they had raised about the gross efficiency in this paper that they're referencing to support their use of gross efficiency and, and, and how you need uh, certain considerations and how things change and how it might not be accurate in, in these different situations. So my question to you, Rob, here is since they were consistent with the, the methodology here, putting, you know, putting aside that there, there are a lot of assumptions here, since they are consistent, do you feel they are able to draw the conclusions they, they drew? Uh, Trevor, I'm going to say yes and no. Um, you know, reading from their results part here, it says the relative anaerobic contribution decreased from the first to the second sprint and from the first to the third sprint. Big picture. I, I think that we can understand that and we can say, yeah, that makes sense. We know their performance is decreasing and we know that a decreased anaerobic is likely going to happen there. But if I continue, it says, while the relative aerobic contribution increased from the first to the second and from the first to the third. This is a nuance that I have to question because we're questioning their methodology in, in actually defining what the contribution is for both of these. Um, you know, so, uh, to, you know, and they're claiming a relatively small increase. You know, we're talking you know, 30, 36.4 to 38 and 36.4 to 37.6%. We're talking a, a change Very of 3%. Amount. Yeah. I, I just, I don't think that we can go that significant, to tell you the truth. Um, not, not without validating this, perhaps, with a different methodology to, to see if we arrive at the same conclusion. So big picture, yes, fully agree with the study. Think it's terrific. Think it's great information. Think it explains a lot of the concepts that we've been talking about today. Um, but 
at the deep sort of nuance, I wouldn't hang my hat, you know, on on a, a 3% change in aerobic contribution. And that is the third smartest thing I've ever heard you say. Oh, where it's hat trick. There we go. <laughs> hey, hat tricks are in hockey often, so that's like a little Canadian reference there. It's my Canadian homage to uh, to Trevor, who probably has never <gasps> slap shot at a hockey puck ever in his life. I have very much slap shot. I was a goalie in high school, <laughs> yeah, exactly. so I didn't do it that much. So the slap shots hit him in the head. Exactly. <laughs> they hit me a lot with hey, slap shots. Hey, kids, stand here. <laughs> that was my job. Stand there, get hit. Thanks for joining us, Rob. Always. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcast. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review when you do. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com join. Become a part of our education and coaching community. For Rob Pickles and Chris Case, I'm Trevor Connor. Thanks for listening.